Well, we uh, began last Sunday a new series of messages, uh, which are a study on the theme of shalom, a biblical word that is rich with meaning and with application for our lives. Shalom is one of those biblical words and themes that means so much more than people typically understand. And I began to unpack that for you last Sunday. If you weren't here, I certainly encourage you to go back and listen to the, uh, the podcast on our website. If you'd like to do that, it'll give you a little bit of helpful background information. But we're going to pick up where we left off and just continue to dig in to this biblical theme of shalom. Because it's a concept that's rich with meaning and application to every dimension of our lives. Uh, It really conveys the meaning, more than uh, simply the word peace might suggest, it conveys the meaning of wellness and wholeness, all things being made right. And so, of course, while we experience elements of shalom here and now, what we're aiming for, what we're looking forward to is the hope of perfect shalom when we arrive in the kingdom of God. So let me begin with a story this morning, an illustration of uh, a man's life who began to experience shalom. Uh, He's not going to use that word specifically, but really it's an aspect of what it means to have your life touched and changed by Jesus Christ. And this is a fascinating story because it's the story of an artist. Now, if you look closely behind me, you might be able to tell, though it's a little you know, ambiguous, you might be able to tell that there's a sculpture I've chosen as the background image for my message notes this morning. I doubt that most of you are familiar with this artist, although perhaps a few of you might have heard of him. His name is Charlie Mackesy. He's from the UK, and he has become quite popular, quite well-known artist around the world, In particular, he's rather famous for numerous versions of this particular sculpture depicting the embrace of the prodigal son by the father. And I want you to just take a moment to watch and listen to the story of Charlie Mackesy. Check this out. Charlie Mackesy has been described as a world-class artist, selling his artwork to the likes of Whoopi Goldberg and Sting. When did you discover (laughs) that you had artistic ability? Good question. I mean, I think I probably knew that I could draw at school, but I think you need a reason to draw. He found that reason about 25 years ago in a London park. An atheist at the time, he says he had a feeling that there must be more to this then meets the eye. Jesus quietly introduced me to a journey into finding people really beautiful, which is how my art really began, because I felt inside me he was going, look, how beautiful is that guy sitting on that bench? And I would never have noticed him before. In this bronze sculpture called The Return of the Prodigal Son, Mackesy captures the raw emotion of that familiar parable. It's located here at Holy Trinity Brompton, one of the most influential churches in the Church of England. 
didn't believe any of it at all. Mackesy is a popular speaker here, particularly with unbelievers. Charlie appeals to people outside of the church because he, he's not what they expect. Um, you know, when you have a sort of picture of the evangelist, you don't picture Charlie Mackesy. So I decided that what I'd do is I had was in bare feet anyway, so I stood on the loose seat like this. He can be a bit unorthodox, like the day he describes hearing a gospel song for the first time at a music festival inside a portable toilet that was so filthy he stood on the seat to avoid the overflow. The song pierced through his atheism, moving him to tears. And he's very humble, very unpretentious. Uh, he tells stories against himself. I didn't really know what had happened to me, but as I was feeling it, my left foot slipped. <laughs> and I went up to here. While Mackesy's stories may not be for the faint of heart, he points out that those closest to Jesus, the disciples, could also be described as objectionable. I realized that they were naughty people, unreligious people, people who didn't really have a religious etiquette, who probably wouldn't be that welcome in church. I thought Christianity was be clean, come to church, be nice, don't use the F word, and you'll be accepted and liked, because that's the thing, it's a meritocracy. And if you want to belong, be a certain way. And he says you're loved. You're loved as you are, covered in whatever it is, on the inside or out. I think he's the, the finest evangelist in the UK at the moment. People outside the church, I would rather take them to hear Charlie than anybody else in the UK. <laughs> and he wasn't joking. <laughs> That's completely ridiculous. This all comes as a shock to Mackesy, which is understandable given his life story. We, we had... We had kind of religious things at school, and I, I hated it. We sang about God, but I didn't like God. I didn't think he existed, but if he did, I didn't like him. How would you have de described or defined a Christian? Oh, someone who pretends to be good and judges people and believes in an invisible friend that they've created. After that strange yet profound encounter with Oh Happy Day... Mackesy moved to New Orleans, immersing himself in black gospel music and jazz. And I wanted to say to my friends, there's a spirit behind this that is incredible. It's so full of life. Look at it. Look at these people. Look what they believe. Look what it does to them. Mackesy sees his art foremost as a way to introduce God to the people he loves. Like Prodigal Daughter for a friend who struggled with bipolar disorder. You know, if you try to explain in words like, oh, God loves you, or you're loved, they don't really carry any meaning at all. To be held is somewhere she, she always wanted. So I said, this is what God is like. Mackesy's art is also a record of God's presence in his own life. I really wanted to play the piano, but I was really rubbish. And for me, the angel represents the voice of God saying, I'm with you, I love you, we'll go there together. I'll help you with this. You're not alone. And this painting, simply titled Known. But there was one day when I was on my bike crossing a bridge in London, and it lasted about 11 seconds. But it was this kind of, 
You're known, you're loved. This, is, this God exists and he loves you. He knows you. You're known, you're fully known. You're fully known. What darkness. You don't have to pretend to be anything. John Jessup, CBN News, London. Isn't that a great illustration? It's a great illustration of what I want to speak to you about today. And his sculpture, I think, is a fitting representation of the concept of reconciliation with God, moving from alienation to reconciliation. Because reconciliation with God is a huge part of how we experience shalom. So, Let's think about this together using Paul's words from Colossians 1 as a launch pad. And uh, I want you to consider, first and foremost, the fact that, like Charlie, every person at some time experiences the reality of what we might describe as alienation from God, alienation from the church, alienation from people who identify as Christians. For Charlie, it was an image of those people, an inaccurate image, but an image that kept him at arm's length, kept him alienated from the church and from God. What I want you to see with me in Paul's writing here is that every person experiences alienation from God as the natural effect of their own evil behavior. Every person, no exceptions. Look with me again at, uh, for just a moment at Colossians 1.21 and see how Paul describes the essence of this problem that confronts every human being at some time in their lives. Colossians 1.21, Paul writes, once, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Alienated. Alienation from God. That's the starting point for for any discussion or study of the concept of experiencing more of God's shalom. Do you know what alienation is? I trust you do. I trust it's not an unusual experience for any of us. Unfortunately, it's quite common to the human condition. Alienation means broken relationship. It is, in that sense, the absence of shalom. It is, by the dictionary definition, the state or experience of being isolated from a group or an activity to which you should belong or in which you should be involved. Somehow you've been kept apart, alienated from something to which you should belong. We were made and meant to belong in right relationship with God. We were made and meant to belong in the church, the body of Christ, the people of God. But just as Paul indicates, because of our evil behavior, or what the Bible calls sin, in our minds, we became enemies of God instead of friends. 
we became alienated from God because our minds were set against him. Now, let's talk about this, right? Let's, let's be honest here. Maybe it stings a little bit to have your behavior characterized as evil. Maybe you find that idea a bit resistant, uh, a bit unattractive or unappealing to your, how you think of yourself, right? Perhaps you're thinking right now, well, wait, evil's a term that should be reserved for the Hitlers and Stalins of the world, not for me. Me? Evil? Really? Well, yes. Honestly, let's, let's admit it, shall we? We may not think of ourselves as profoundly evil, like the worst people in human history. Of course, by comparison, there's always somebody more evil than we are. But in the broadest sense, evil is simply the absence and opposite of good. Are you completely good? So then, perhaps the biggest lie of all history is that any person can be good enough or holy enough to never become alienated from God. Truthfully, we've all been there. We all know what it feels like to be alienated from right relationship with our Creator. So this, my friends, is the the basic human condition that Paul's referring to and describing for us. And men and women across the globe are dealing with this condition. Whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, alienation drives us apart and away instead of keeping us where we belong, in right relationship with God. And it's caused by the wrongdoing or the sin of humanity in our fallen condition. Here's another way to think of it. In Romans 3.23, Paul explains this a little further and with a little different image when he writes, there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Even though the Jews might appear to be more religious, there's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. That's a big little word. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What, what a great description, what a great image of sin and its effect. It's literally falling short or missing the mark that we're meant to be aiming for. Here's an image, an illustration for you to think about, and it's from the world of sports. Hopefully, it'll be appealing and attractive to a few of you anyway. Anybody ever been to a basketball game or like watching basketball? Perhaps you're a Spartan fan. Probably not too many Pistons fans still around anymore. (laughs) Just playing. But anyway, um, consider this, right? If you've ever gone to shoot a bucket, you know full well you'd never make 100% of every shot you take. That's just not the way it works, right? No matter who you are, the best shooters in the world don't make 100% of their shots. They always miss sometimes. 
In fact, uh, there's a great story. Uh, I thought about playing the video and decided against it, but there's a great story. This is a true story, right, from the, the NBA Finals in 1997 when Kobe Bryant was a rookie. And he played for the Los Angeles Lakers, of course. They were playing against the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals in 1997. Here's a rookie, hot stuff. Everybody thinks the world of him. He's in the finals in his rookie year. Everybody, of course, wants to shoot, wants to make the back basket, wants to win the game. And you know what Kobe did? In the fourth quarter of that game, and then on into overtime, he shot four air balls in five minutes. Dead serious. This is true. Four air balls in five minutes. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure where he found the courage to even shoot the fourth time. I would have stopped. I would have passed to somebody else. Four air balls in five minutes from one of the best shooters that the game of basketball has ever known. Now, think of that as an analogy for the way unholiness works in our lives. We fall short. We miss the mark. We fail to make every shot we attempt. In fact, I think you could even say that true holiness is more difficult than just making a shot with a basketball. I mean, imagine this, if you want a comical picture to kind of Uh, ponder for a little while. Here you go. I think the challenge of true holiness is like comparable to the challenge of jumping from the free throw line and diving through the basket with your entire body. There's a crazy idea. There's a crazy picture for you. Imagine that perfect holiness is like jumping from the free throw line and diving with your whole body through the hole without getting stuck. That's being holy. Come on now, help me out a little. So what I'm describing for you is a picture of the human condition, the fallen human condition. Even the best person fails to make every shot and fails to live up to the holy standard of God's law. That's life. That's reality. And we all know it, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we all know it. But instead of losing a game, like Kobe did, what we lose is right relationship with God. When we fail to make every shot, when we fail to live up to his holy standard, we lose fellowship with God. We lose right relationship with God. And so this alienation from God that we all experience has to be repaired. Or to use the term that Paul puts before us, our our broken relationship with God has to experience reconciliation. So what we're talking about this morning is a movement, a transfer, a transition from alienation to reconciliation. How do you get from here to there? How do you move from this place to that place? How do you take a broken relationship in which you're experiencing alienation from the God of heaven and earth and fix it so that it's made right again? 
Is that even possible? How could it be possible? Well, that brings us then really to the second insight that Paul lays before us here. God offers every person reconciliation with him instead of alienation from him. Think about that. That's the essence of what Paul's describing for us in Colossians chapter 1. Now, there's lots of other stuff there. In fact, the first several sentences, I'm not even going to look at those with you, but they're packed with meaning and significance about the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. I'm just focusing really for, for right now on, on verses you know, 19, 20, 21, 22, right in there, that part of the end of the passage where Paul talks about alienation and reconciliation and contrasts them with one another. Look at what he wrote again, and look with me here at the next verse. We read verse 21 already. Look at verses 22 and 23 and how they flip the script, right? Once, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Whoa. That's amazing. How could that be? Once you were alienated and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy. You've been made holy through what Jesus has done for you. Once you were alienated, but now he has reconciled you. If alienation is the breaking of a right relationship with God, then reconciliation is the remaking of that right relationship. Now, obviously, these terms apply more broadly. They apply to human relationships as well. But what we're focused on right now is what it means for us to be in relationship with God, personal relationship with the living God. Once we were alienated, but now, Paul says, we've been reconciled. Reconciliation, like alienation, is a a great word, a great term, a great concept to kind of dig into for a moment and ponder. It's the restoration or the fixing of what was once broken. In fact, did you know, if you're an English student perhaps, uh, that the the etymology of the word reconciliation is actually Latin, It comes from two Latin parts, the prefix re, meaning back or again, and the word conciliare, meaning bring together or make friendly. So reconciliation is literally bringing something back together again. Bringing something back together again. It's making two people or parties friendly again when they have previously been enemies or adversaries. And here's the key thing to understand about reconciliation. How does it work? How could it work? Well, let me tell you. 
in any relationship, but specifically for now, in your relationship with God, reconciliation is impossible apart from forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key to reconciliation. We can't possibly experience the reconciliation of a broken relationship without forgiveness. In fact, this applies, as I've suggested, across the board to every relationship we have, either with God or with other people. Whenever a relationship becomes broken, the only way that it can be fixed again is through the process of forgiveness. Forgiveness restores the brokenness created by sin and and selfishness. So that brings, then, into perspective our need for reconciliation and shalom in other relationships as well. But that's a subject we'll we'll return to in a few weeks. For now, I want to limit your focus with me on the first and most important relationship of all. It's very difficult to get relationships right with other people if your relationship with God is not right first. So if you want to be in right relationship with God, you can't do it apart from receiving forgiveness for your sins and the reconciliation that results. That's what Paul's telling us and describing here in Colossians chapter 1. In fact, I think we could say, really, that this is the bare essence of the gospel or the good news, the very essence of it. There are lots of aspects to the gospel. The gospel is a big, broad reality that we experience in lots of different ways. But if we were forced to boil it down, we might describe it like this. It's, it's the fixing of a broken relationship. It's the making right of a relationship that had gone wrong. And how does that happen? It happens through the forgiveness that we are offered, the grace that we are offered, which has to be received by faith. By faith. So there's a a connection here between grace and faith and how they bring the experience of reconciliation into our lives. Reconciliation is a gift that we've been offered. But we have to choose to receive that gift to make good use of it, to experience it. We have to continue in faith, as Paul says in verse 23, established and firm, unmoved from the hope of the reconciliation that God has offered us. So, there are two dynamics at work here in the process of reconciliation with God. God initiates, and he's done that supremely through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which Paul describes. But then we have to respond. We have to activate reconciliation by receiving the grace of God with faith. So there's this integral relationship between grace and faith and how they work together to bring reconciliation into our lives. Paul describes this and refers to it in another great uh, verse, reference from Scripture, on this same subject. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
where he writes, It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You see how that confronts the lie that we talked about earlier? The lie that we could be good enough to never be alienated from God? No, that would, that would mean our relationship with God is based on works, not on grace. But it can't happen, Paul says. It's not by works so that no man can ever boast. It's by grace that we are reconciled through faith. Now, while we're on the topic here, maybe I'll just take a quick moment to throw in a, a word about predestination versus free will. Would you like that? Is it okay if I slip a quick one in here? Yeah, I know. I could. <laughs> so, does God choose us or do we choose God? Be careful, it's a trick question. Yes, right, thank you, I appreciate that. Maybe it sounds so far like I've maybe landed just a bit on the side of free will, uh, but frankly, I'm quite happy to live with the ambiguity and the, the paradox that somehow both are true. I will never forget one of the, one of the uh, lingering quotes in my mind from my, my few years in seminary was uh, from a professor addressing this very subject. And it was quite shocking, I think, to the entire class because this is a Reformed church seminary where, you know, the whole predestination thing is highly emphasized. He said, does God choose us or do we choose God? Well, the answer is yes. The math may not add up, but somehow both are 100% true. I love that. So then, the idea that Paul puts before us for consideration here highlights both God's initiative and our response. Both are critical to the experience of reconciliation in this broken relationship. He has reconciled us, as Paul puts it, yet at the same time, he emphasizes our need to have faith and continue in faith in order for that reconciliation to be experienced. It's both and, not either or. Now, let me bring this all the way back around to the concept of shalom. I've got a few minutes left to make one last point for you. And I want to I focus with you now on the concept of shalom and how it connects to these two other terms, alienation and reconciliation. What does all of this, all that I've just described and all that Paul is writing about in Colossians 1 have to do with shalom? Well, let me put it to you this way. I would say the most significant facet of shalom is the wellness of our relationship with God, which is made possible by reconciliation. So there are other facets of shalom. It's a multifaceted reality. I talked about that last week, and I'll, I'll reemphasize it again in a moment here. What I want you to understand is I've chosen this word really purposefully. Shalom is a multifaceted reality, a multifaceted experience. Last week, when we talked about this, 
I shared a quote from Timothy Keller in an article titled Shalom. He writes, Shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, with oneself, and with others. He uses the word multidimensional. I like the word multifaceted because it actually reminds me of the facets of a diamond. Go ahead and put that picture up for me, if you will, Rebecca. Take a look at this picture and think about what it represents. A diamond, as you may or may not know, has many facets. In fact, one of the most common cuts of a diamond has 58 different facets. A facet is simply the cut surface of a diamond. And so each cut surface is a different facet on a diamond. Now, in this case, what I want you to consider is that the the largest cut surface, the biggest facet of all, and probably the most significant of all, is specifically referred to as, does anybody know? The table. The table. It's the top, particularly on a round cut, if you can kind of imagine looking down on it like this. And so really what you're seeing here is you're you're seeing through the top of the diamond into the, the light that's reflected from the cuts beneath the top of the diamond. Every cut diamond has multiple facets or cut surfaces, but the largest facet and the most significant one is specifically called the table. Here's a quote for you about the significance of the table from a website uh, by a gemologist or whatever they're called. The table refers to the flat facet of the diamond, which can be seen when the stone is faced up. It also happens to be the largest facet on a diamond and therefore plays a vital role on brilliance and, and the light performance of a stone. The main purpose of the table facet is to refract light rays entering the diamond and to allow reflected light rays from the pavilion facets back into the observer's eye. Now, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the science of how that works, but just consider it this way. Let me try to simplify it for you. It's through the table that light reflects to us so that all the beauty and all the other facets of the diamond can be appreciated. I don't want to, you know, like I said, I don't want to digress into the science of how that works, but, but it's a great analogy for how we're able to see and experience all the facets of shalom through the table, which is reconciliation with God. That's the first and most significant. That's the largest and most beautiful of every facet that shalom has to offer us. So I think this is a, a brilliant analogy for how we're able to see and experience all the various facets of shalom in our lives. The biggest one of all, through which the light of all others becomes visible and beautiful to us, the biggest one of all is reconciliation with God. If you want to experience shalom, here's where it starts. 
Now look with me how Paul describes this reality in Colossians 1. And here we have to back up a little bit to verses 19 and 20. We skipped over these earlier to begin with verse 21. But now back up and look at what he says. And let me again, as I did last week, substitute the word shalom for the word peace. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ Jesus, and through him, Christ Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. So what Paul's telling us is that God is a peacemaker. God is a shalom maker. He's in the business of generating shalom in our lives so that we can experience the beauty and wonder of what it is. So to facilitate this experience, Paul explains, God sent us Jesus, Yeshua, as the Hebrews would say. And through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, those who were formerly enemies of God have now been made friends, or at least offered friendship. And what's really remarkable and insightful about this reference is the connection here between reconciliation and peace or shalom. Essentially, they're related. In fact, in some ways, you could almost see them as as not only just related and interconnected, but almost synonymous in this passage. Through Christ, Paul says, God has reconciled all things to himself by making peace through Jesus' shed blood. So both are accomplished through Christ, and both involve the making right of a previously broken or adversarial relationship. If they're not completely synonymous, there's certainly a significant overlap here between the concepts that Paul's describing. In fact, the way that I like to think of it, again, is that reconciliation with God is the most significant aspect or facet of shalom. It's really the gateway to the good and beautiful life that God has invited you to experience. Now, just to kind of finish up here and help you to understand that there's more to the scriptures, more, more that really describes the significance of this connection, I want to take you with the few minutes we have left to Romans chapter 5. Because I want you to see there another passage in which Paul addresses these two concepts and brings them together in a very similar way. But it really expands on what we're reading in Colossians 1. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. We have shalom with God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You see the significance here of all these terms and how they relate to one another. And then he continues just a few verses later in verses 6 through 11 with these words. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died 
for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So again, Paul is connecting for us these words, reconciliation and shalom. They are interconnected and interrelated. You can't have one without the other. Let me close this morning with another illustration. And this one was put together uh, specifically for a ministry that we're beginning here. Uh, it wasn't done for our church specifically, but it was done at Holy Trinity Brompton, the church uh, where Nikki Gumbel is the pastor. And that's the church out of which the Alpha program was begun, which has now been used in churches around the globe to help bring literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people into relationship with God. I want you to see an illustration, a, a little video that they put together featuring Charlie Max, uh, Mackesy again. And notice closely the description that he gives of how to see more clearly. Take a look at this and, and think about the significance of, of what he says and, as it applies to us. And I'll, I'll close in just a moment. To be honest, um, church, <laughs> church has always, church has always made me feel very uncomfortable. I guess you know, in the same way, I, I was doing an exhibition of paintings, and one of the things I, I can't bear when I do shows is, is instead of someone coming in and enjoying the work, they scrutinise it. They come right up and make me feel uncomfortable with their notebooks and their cagoules and their rucksacks and their. Um, this woman came into the gallery where I was sitting, and she she walked straight up to a painting, and instead of just enjoying it, she she had a little notebook, and she pushed, pretty much put her nose against the canvas. And I uh, started taking notes, and went to the next one, did the same thing. And it really irritated me. I just thought, well, why can't you just enjoy it? And so I built up the courage. I walked straight towards her, and I was about to say, can't And she turned to me, and she said, hello, how are you? And I said, fine, thanks. And she had enormously thick glasses, like huge glasses. And she said, I'm so sorry, it must look odd. And she said, I can't see so well, so I have to, I have to examine the, the brush strokes and the texture and I write poetry about the texture and I just felt like I had no idea you know, I didn't know what to say because it was just on the edge of being really rude and I, I suppose that I've always felt in the same way I'd look at the church and God and Christianity like I looked at her I just thought you know why you know uh, scrutinizing me judging me whatever and um and actually, I mistook it. I often mistake things. I just, that's how I saw it. Um, but when I approached it, I was met with um, the least likely response, which was just, I enjoy what you do. I am interested in you.
So when we take a closer look at the gospel, when we take a closer look at what Jesus has done for us, when we take a closer look at this reality called the church, what we find is not what we may have expected at first. What we find is the beauty of what God has done for us and invited us to experience. Friends, I hope that that serves as an invitation for you to explore the mystery of shalom, the facets of shalom. And perhaps as well, to bring somebody else along on that exploration. I want to close really with an announcement, an invitation, a challenge, right? We began a couple weeks ago encouraging and challenging one another to bring some friends to church this week. There are a few here who've come in response to that invitation. We have another opportunity to go a little deeper, to explore a little further, to study the beauty of what God has done and to really dig into it. And it begins Friday night. The Alpha Course is going to happen right here at CCV at 6.30 Friday. It's going to begin with a meal, a shared meal, and then a video explaining different aspects of the good news of Christianity, what, it really, what it's really all about, what God has done for us and how we can respond to it. And then there's a time of discussion, a time of exploration, a time to, to just sit and talk and ask questions. And, uh, you know, perhaps this isn't uh, the most, um, wouldn't be the most helpful thing for each of you that have been part of the church for a long time, but maybe you want to come, maybe you want to think about coming to be there to interact with others who are exploring. Or maybe you have a friend that you'd like to bring that's exploring. Maybe there's somebody like Charlie just described, that's examining the church, examining the gospel, examining the Bible, and wondering what it's really all about. Friends, if, if you'll heed this encouragement, we could change somebody's life. Would you pray about who you could invite if you know God, if you walk with Christ, if you're following him, if you've experienced the power of reconciliation with God and shalom has become a part of your life in some measure, then consider the opportunity to share that with others. Let's pray.